Let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is life and light to us. Please help us this morning to understand what your word is saying, to understand the logic of it, and to understand its application to us and to be changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For most people, life just kind of happens. There's no real overarching purpose to it, no driving force, no, no passion about it. Life just kind of presents itself to us and we just deal with it, one thing after the next. You go to school because your parents tell you to. If, you push you, if the, your parents push you hard enough, like mine did, you end up at university. You leave uni, get yourself a mortgage, a slave master for 25 years. You end up in some job each week looking forward to Friday. When the time comes, you get married, you have children, and then you push them hard to follow the same rut that you followed. Eventually, you fall over the line to retirement. Generally speaking, if you're a man, you're dead within a year or two. Otherwise, you just wait to die. <laughs> That's life for most people. A few years ago, consultants did a management report on the Department of Community Services, analysing their management strategy. And they came to the conclusion that the management strategy of the Department of Community Service was, and I quote, running from one emergency to the next running from one emergency to the next. I reckon that's the way most people live their whole lives. You always seem to be busy, but there's no overarching purpose. You're just running from one emergency to the next. And, and there's no passion about it. And maybe you get excited by a game of footy on the TV, or you get a thrill from some imaginary movie or book or something like that, but for the rest, life just passes you by. There's nothing to really live for, nothing to really drive you. There are some people who are exceptions. You see some artists, they're passionate about painting or music and, and, uh, and they give up everything for their passion. Or you see some sports people, they've got a goal, get that gold medal and, and everything else is subsumed to their passion. There are exceptions, but for the most part, life... Uh, Life just happens for most people. No great passion. No great purpose. Well, this morning we start our series on Paul's letter to the Romans. We look at the introduction, the part where Paul greets his readers. And right from the start, we can see that Paul's life is in stark contrast to the lives of most people because Paul's life is filled with passion, consumed by passion, to quote one writer. Uh, Paul's whole life is driven by one overriding purpose. You can even see it in the very first verse of the letter, where Paul introduces himself. I mean, how do most people introduce themselves? They, they talk about uh, their name, what they do, perhaps something about their family, where they come from. Hi, I'm Fred Nurk. I'm a computer technician from Barcelona, married with one daughter. There's your standard introduction, isn't it? For me, I say, hi, I'm Jeff Reed, and people go, aren't you Carmelina's husband? <laughs> so, we, uh, we define our identity in certain ways. 
But have a look at, at how Paul defines his identity. He says, who is he? He's a slave of Jesus Christ, set apart for the gospel, the good news of God. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a slave, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. He defines his whole identity by reference to a man called Jesus, by, by reference to a message called this gospel. And in the, next, in the next few verses, Paul outlines what he means by this gospel. He tells us a few things about it. First, he says it was promised in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Then he goes on to talk about who the gospel is about. It's about God's son, God's human son, descended from King David in the Old Testament. Verse 3, the gospel, verse 3, regarding his son, God's son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. Now you may remember King David from the Old Testament. You may remember that God made lots of promises to him, promised that one of his descendants would be God's own son. One of his descendants would be the ruler, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. Promises like we saw in Psalm 2. I said to you, you are my son. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your inheritance. Well, according to this gospel that Paul talks about, the promises have come true. God has declared that Jesus is the powerful son of God. God has declared this by raising Jesus from the dead. And so this gospel tells us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that he is the Lord, that he is our Lord, our boss. Verse 4, verse 4, the Son of God, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, Christ, our Lord. That's what Paul means when he talks about the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus, about how he died and rose again in fulfilment of the scriptures, about how God has made him our boss. And for Paul, this message has profound implications. It defines who he is. Paul says he's a slave of this Jesus, set apart for this gospel. And he goes on to say, it's changed his whole life. Because of Jesus, Paul has quit his job. He's left his home. And he travels around telling people to believe and to obey Jesus. Verse 5, through him, through Jesus, and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles, all the nations, to the obedience that comes from faith. This gospel has completely changed Paul's life. Turn it upside down. But as far as Paul's concerned, it's not just for him. It's also for the people in Rome, the people he's writing to. They've been called to the obedience of faith as well. They've been called to have Jesus as their Lord. And so verse 6, And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And so then he goes on to greet them. He wishes them grace and peace from God. But notice how he describes them. Again, it's all in terms of Jesus and the gospel. He says they've been loved by God. He says they've been called to be saints, 
That doesn't mean uh, extra special Christians, it just means Christians. But it's a word that means that Christians are special, set apart by God, called by him to be holy. Verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see Paul's passion, even here in this introduction? His own identity is defined by the gospel and the identity of his readers, how he thinks about other people. He thinks of them in terms of the gospel as well. And as he goes on, we see more of his passion. Paul goes on to talk about how he's been praying for these Romans. He says he's been praying for them, thanking God for their faith, thanking God that their faith is getting known everywhere. He says he's been praying that he can come to see them so they can encourage each other, so they can help each other to stand firm as Christians. There in verse 8, verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Do you see the passion again? I mean, to start with, he is praying. He actually does it. And he's not just praying every now and then if he happens to think about it. He says he's constant in prayer, morning, noon and night. And notice he's praying for specific people. And he's praying gospel-centred prayers for them. He's thanking God that they're Christians. He's praying for opportunity to encourage them as Christians. Paul is filled with passion for Jesus and his gospel. Verse 9, did you notice he talks about his wholehearted service? Verse 11, he talks about how he longs to see the Romans so he can encourage them. He's passionate, and that passion drives his prayers. But Paul hasn't just prayed about these things. He's been making specific plans as well. He's been plotting and scheming, lying awake at night, working out how he can put into practice his gospel passion. Verse 13. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. Paul plans his life around Jesus and the gospel. His work plans, his travel plans, they all flow from his passion. He's, he's doing what he can to use his gifts to help other Christians. He's doing what he can to share the gospel with non-Christians and he's deliberate about it. He makes plans. He sits down with a, with a bit of paper and a pen or whatever he had and he makes plans of how he can do it. It's pretty full on, isn't it? Paul defines himself by reference to Jesus. He, he prays gospel prayers. He plans gospel plans. His whole life is consumed by passion for Jesus and the gospel. So, so why? Why all this passion? Paul goes on to tell us the reason. He says that he is obligated. 
He's got an obligation, like a debt of some kind. That's why he's so eager to tell people about Jesus. Verse 14, he says, I am obligated, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. His passion flows from an obligation. And in the next verses, he explains why he's obligated. It's because of the nature of the gospel. Paul says it's because the gospel is able to save people, to rescue people. Verse 16, he talks about, this is why I'm obligated. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. How is the gospel able to save people? He goes on to tell us. God reveals his righteousness in the gospel. Not just his own righteousness. He actually gives righteousness to people. He he, he pardons people who put their faith in Jesus. He declares them innocent so that they stand righteous before him. Verse 17, the gospel is God's power for salvation. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And then Paul quotes from the Old Testament to back up what he's saying. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's a little bit dense, these last couple of verses, but but it's important that we understand them because these couple of verses here give us the reason why Paul lived the life he did. They give us the reason why he's so passionate. Let, Let me run back through the logic of these verses. Verse 17, in the gospel, God reveals his righteousness. He forgives and pardons us. That means, verse 16, the gospel is God's powerful way of rescuing us from his anger, from judgment. And so, verse 16, Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. He's eager to preach the gospel, verse 15. In fact, verse 14, he's even obligated to tell people about Jesus. Do you see the logic? The saving nature of the gospel produces an obligation in Paul. It's a little bit like if you get the cure for cancer. Imagine, imagine uh, someone comes up to you one day and gives you a piece of paper. Here's the cure for cancer, they say. You've got it there in your hands. It can save people's lives. What are you going to do? Would it be right to say, that's great, thanks very much, this will uh, come in really handy if ever I get cancer. I'll pop it away in the filing cabinet. You can't do that, can you? That's not right. If you get the cure for cancer, it comes with an obligation. You're obligated to share your good news to everyone who needs it. Paul's working with the same kind of logic here. The gospel is God's powerful way of saving people, not just uh, saving their lives, saving their eternal lives. And Paul reckons that makes him obligated. And that is why Paul is so passionate about the gospel. That's why it's transformed everything in his life. That's why it's turned his whole life upside down. That's why he's not ashamed of the gospel. That's why he's eager to preach the gospel. That's why he plans gospel plans. That's why he prays gospel prayers. That's why even when he describes himself, he describes himself as a slave of Jesus, set apart for the gospel. Now, there's no doubt about it. Paul is a unique individual. Paul was an apostle of Jesus. He saw the risen Jesus. The risen Jesus himself commissioned Paul to be a a, a preacher. Paul is a unique and a special individual. But I reckon that the logic of these verses must apply to us as well. Paul says he's obligated to preach the gospel. Why? 
not because he's an apostle, not because he saw Jesus, but because the gospel itself is God's powerful way of saving people. Paul doesn't say he's obligated because of his special commission. He doesn't say he's unique in this obligation. The saving nature of the gospel itself produces an obligation in him, and that's got to apply to you and me as well. It must do. Do you believe that the gospel can save people? Have you put your trust in Jesus to save you? Well, you're in exactly the same position as Paul. You've got the cure for cancer, so to speak. It doesn't just obligate him, it obligates you. It obligates me. We owe it to a world that is facing God's anger to tell them about Jesus because he's the only way they can be saved. We owe it to a world that is facing eternal death to tell them about Jesus because he is the only way they can have life. We owe it to them. We're obligated. If you think about this, this is life-changing stuff. You cannot believe this and go away ordinary and unchanged. If this is right and we are actually Christians, then we have got an obligation that should fill us with passion and turn our lives upside down. So let's think about it. What should it mean for us? Well, for Paul, the gospel defines who he is. He's a slave of Jesus. Who are you? How do you define yourself? Do you define yourself by what you do? Do you, do you see yourself as a lawyer or IT specialist or whatever you are? Do you define yourself by your family? Are you first and foremost a single person or a husband or a wife or a mum or dad or grandparent? Is that where you define your identity? Because if we're Christians, it's all changed, hasn't it? Before anything else, we are now slaves of Jesus. If you're a dad, you're a Christian dad. If you're a mum, you're a Christian mum. If you're a worker, you're a Christian worker. Christian first. Who you are is different. And so how you will be what you are and what you do has got to change. If the good news about Jesus is true, then it changes who we are. Or what about our prayers? Verses 8 to 12, Paul prays gospel prayers. He thanks God for people's faith. He prays for opportunity to encourage people. Does it sound like your prayers? Are you praying at all? If you are, it's, uh, it's very easy to fall into the habit of praying, God bless me and my family and our dog, isn't it? I know it's so easy to, to just slip into that. But in the light of the gospel, it's not good enough, is it? Not if people's eternal destiny is at stake. We need to get those prayer diaries out every day. We need to be praying for the people in our church. We need to be thanking God for their faith, praying that people will stand firm, praying that we'll have a chance to encourage them. We need to be passionately in prayer for our families and our friends and our colleagues who don't know Jesus. We need to be fervently in prayer for missionaries and evangelists as they take the gospel out into the world. That, that large hall back there should be full every month. 
as we have our prayer breakfast, not with the pathetic, pitiful couple of people, thank you to those couple of people, who come week after week. I mean, in this big church, only a couple of people can manage to get out of bed to pray. We need to be consistently praying passionate gospel prayers. Or what about our plans? Verse 13, Paul's planning gospel plans. His life is directed and shaped by his passion for the gospel. Does it sound like your plans? I suspect that most of us follow the same plan as everyone else. No particular plan at all. Life just presents itself to us and we just run from one emergency to the next. But again, it's not good enough, is it? Not if the gospel is true. Not if the message about Jesus actually saves people from hell. It's time to change plans. It's time to start planning gospel plans. Here's something radical. I heard a preacher a while ago. He said uh, that we live our lives back to front. Most of us find a job in the career that we want, then we find a house we can afford, and then we go looking for a church. The preacher said it's all back to front. You need to start off by finding a good church, a church where the Bible is faithfully taught, where you can serve people and be served. Next step, you find an affordable house nearby, and then you find a job that lets you pay for the house and serve in the church. Too radical, do you think? Too passionate? Not realistic? I'm not sure. But if I do believe the gospel, then surely I've got to at least have some gospel plans. It's got to be making some difference. Surely I've got to have some plan about how I'm going to spend my, my time encouraging other Christians. Surely I've got to have some plan about how I'm going to spend my money on gospel ministry. Surely I've got to have some plan about how I'm going to actually share the gospel with my friends and my colleagues and my neighbours. Surely I've got to have some plans... Have you invited anyone to our mission events yet? Are you planning to do it? Or are you too busy running from one emergency to the next? I think the logic of this passage is, is inescapable. You can't actually believe the message of the Lord Jesus Christ but then not be passionate about it. If you're not passionate about it, you either don't believe it or you don't understand it. You can't believe this gospel, but then be silent. You can't believe this gospel, but, but then be ashamed by it, or bored by it, or unaffected by it. It doesn't make any sense. You can't be a Christian and then be ordinary. If the gospel is true, then it needs to be the driving force in our lives. It needs to be an overriding purpose for our lives. It should change our identity. It should change our prayers. It should change our plans. The gospel is God's powerful way of saving people. Do you believe that? No, no, I mean, do you actually believe that? Then let it change you. Let it fill you with passion. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that, that you do have good news for us. The Lord Jesus Christ has come and lived and died so that we can be right before you. 
so that we, be, we can be forgiven for our sins and rescued from your anger and judgment and so that we can have eternal life with you. Our Father, please help us to understand this message. Please help us to believe it. Please help us to see its implications. And please fill us with passion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.